Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast, where we have conversations with guests about their life, loss, grief, and of course, grief dreams, which can be dreams of the deceased. If you want to know more about the topic and your hosts, please visit our website at griefdreams.ca. To support our podcast, please go ahead and rate it. For additional ways to support us, please refer to our show notes. Before we move on with the show, we'd like to give a territory acknowledgement. Long before Canada was formed, the Stalo people were the original land stewards, and they have lived here since time immemorial. They continue to live in the unceded Stalo territory, known to settlers as the Fraser Valley and Lower Fraser Canyon of British Columbia. We recognize and honor the contribution that Indigenous people have made and continue to make to our community and the topic of great dreams. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. On the show today, we have myself, Joshua, and Jade as your hosts, alongside our guest, Parvati Marcus. And so Parvati is the author of Whisper in the Heart, the Ongoing Presence of Neem Kroli Baba, which was released this year, and Love Everyone, the Transcendent Wisdom of Neem Kroli Baba, told through the stories of Westerners through lives he's transformed. And that came out in 2015. With Radha Baum, she is the co-author of the children's book, Isabella Castasvela, love the name, The Happy Little Witch and Her Friends, and that just also came out this year too, so she's been busy. And then she's also been midwifing spiritually-oriented nonfiction books and memoirs as a developmental editor and writer since her efforts with Ram Dass's classic, Be Here Now. She has also helped with spiritual organizations as a past president of the Neem Kroli Baba Ashram and the Hanuman Temple in Taos, New Mexico, and events as a developmental consultant for the Global Peace Initiative of Women. She is on the advisory board of the Love Serve Remember Foundation and lives in Los Angeles near her two sons and three granddaughters. So welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm delighted to be here. So what's it like having two publications in one year? Total insanity. (laughs) Do not launch two books at once. (laughs) That's all I can tell you, (laughs) especially, you know, seemingly such different ones, you know, Mm. so it's, it's been quite interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I was really happy to hear that you did release sort of, I haven't read the, the Isabella one yet. I will, but the ones on Maharaji, I remember reading your original book in 2015 and just, I like really kept it with me. And every time I would travel, bring it with me and just read some of the the stories in there. And then when this new one came out and then it, it talked about dreams. I'm like, we, we got to have you on this podcast because it's always something I'd, I, I like hearing about. And Mirabai Bush, who came on our, our show, talked about a grief dream she had of Maharaji that really helped her when she was stressed and taking, I guess, life too seriously. He was like, oh, Jade, if you remember, he was playing. So like she was at this like river or something. And then he was playing in the water. He's wearing a bathing suit that he would normally, <laughs> that was in like plaid, like the... Like the blanket. blanket. Yeah, like the blanket. It was in his bathing suit. And so he was like frolicking in the water and just like having fun. And so she woke up from that and just basically said like her decision that she was she was planning on making, it's okay. And not take it too seriously. We'll talk about also like mine and Jade's dreams, Maharaji too, that have been, I think, impactful for us along the way. And so, yeah. So when it came out, I'm like, we got to, you know, know more about what's going on here and also just talk to you because anytime I get a chance to talk about the subject, it always warms my heart because really Jade's the only one I talk about the subject. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me explain a little bit, first of all, about the difference between the two books, between Love Everyone and Whisper in the Heart. In in Love Everyone, I interviewed about 70 of the Westerners who had been to India and been with Maharaji in the body 
during, you know, those early years of 71, 72, 73. And then he left his body on, you know, September 11th, 1973. And a whisper in the, you know, so those are all sort of first person experiences with Maharaji in Love Everyone. Then when we get to Whisper in the Heart, what happened is after Love Everyone came out, people kept coming up to me and going, well, I just met Maharaji, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and this is what happened. And so uh, Whisper in the Heart are stories from about 150 people, different ways in which they have, quote, met Maharaji since he left his body. So, you know, it sort of spreads this out. And one of the big ways people do meet him is through dreams. And these are not the dreams that are sort of that uh, your day-to-day runoff, you know, you know, where I find myself editing books at night, you know, in my sleep. <laughs> you know, this is darshan. And darshan means being in the presence of uh, either um, a being or a deity or whoever it is that represents the divine for you. And being in the presence of that unconditional love. And it's it's beyond what people think of as a dream. It's actually more real than what you feel is real in your day-to-day life. And you probably had that experience yourself when you dreamt about Maharaji, a feeling of being in the presence of this being. And so I wanted people to understand that when we're talking about these dreams, these are darshan dreams. What they can do is relieve the grief or relieve the separation that you feel or relieve the, um, they're, they're a blessing. They're a grace that happens. Do you want to tell about your dream? (laughs) Well, first, I think it's important to tell people maybe that don't know Maharaji who Maharaji was and how, how you met him. Oh, well, that's a story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we have to go back to the 60s and remembering what the 60s were like for those who remember. And for those who don't, well, you've heard about it. It's all true. Um, (laughs) uh, Basically, what happened, a very brief version of it is that at 1969, I took acid for the first time and had an experience of oneness. And as I came down from the trip, somebody handed me the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And as I read it over the next few days going, hmm, yeah, that's sort of exactly what happened. You know, very interesting. <laughs> three, three weeks later, I was at a party and there, you know, with a bunch of educators from Goddard College, as a matter of fact. And um, in the corner was a guy playing a guitar. So that's where I headed. <laughs> and he said, hey, you want to go meet a saint? Now, three weeks before I took the acid, I would have said, forget it. They don't exist. What are you talking about? You know, but because of that acid trip, I was able to say, sure, <laughs> let's go see what is, you know, who the saint is. And uh, we drove down to uh, New Hampshire at, to Ramdas's father's farm. Ramdas, for those who don't know, uh, was once Richard Alpert, and he and this guy named Timothy Leary were both kicked out of Harvard for uh, the experiments they were doing with psychedelics with students. So, uh, and uh, Leary went off to become the, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out guru of LSD. And Ramda and Richard went to India, met this being Maharaji, and became Ramdas, the servant of God. So, when I met Ramdas in 1969, he had just come back, I mean, a year earlier from meeting Maharaji for the first time. And he was glowing. <laughs> 
he was absolutely radiant. I had never seen anybody like that. And he was standing there as we drove up the driveway to his father's farm. And I, I was shocked. I couldn't even speak. All I could see was light. And I was straight. I hadn't smoked anything. I hadn't dropped anything. I was straight, you know, and all I could see was light coming from him. To make a long story short, everybody I met there, there were only about a dozen people there at the time, but every one of them, it was like, where do I know you from? Where did you go to school? Where did you go to camp? Why do I know you? And these are the people like Krishna Das and Rameshwar Das and all these other people that are still my closest family, so to speak. So it's sort of, I had found my tribe. There were strange people walking around going, namaste. I didn't know what they were talking about. You know, <laughs> it was, um, but I knew I belonged there. And three days, you know, I moved right in. And three days later, I became Ram Dass's secretary, you know, he, snail mail days. You know, he'd been lecturing around the country and people were writing letters and he was responding to their letters. So I'd listen to the tapes you know, of him responding to these letters and type them up. And this is how I sort of learned the vocabulary of my new life and, you know, learned the concepts and learned what was going on. And at the end of that summer, all I, all we, any of us wanted to do was to go to India to find this Maharaji. I mean, Ramdas wasn't telling us his name or where he was because we wanted to get whatever Ramdas had gotten from where he had gotten it. <laughs> Have I diverged from your question? What was the question? It was how, how you met him. How you oh, met how Maharaji. I met Maharaji. <laughs> oh, so, and, right. I told you it was a long story. So anyway, after that summer with Ram Dass, Ram Dass went off to Lama Foundation, which had no book, no phones at the time. There was no way of getting in touch with him. I hadn't yet met the person who became sort of my first meditation teacher. And um, I was visiting with a college friend and we split a tab of acid. Uh, the next day, I was still not totally down, and I was going to weird astral places and getting scared. And I had this little picture of Maharaji that Ramdas had given me. So I sat in front of this picture with my mala going, I'm scared and you've got to help me. <laughs> that was my mantra. I'm scared and you've got to help me. That's why there's a section in Whisper called Cry for Help. <laughs> and this little picture started glowing in like blue light. And I could see Maharaji behind it. And it was just for a second, but it was like enough for me to lie down and go through whatever else I had to go through and everything was okay. Well, needless to say, after that, I got a larger picture of Maharaji and I basically lived my life in front of that picture and, uh, t you know, talked to it all the time. And, uh, you know, when I finally got to India and I finally got to Maharaji, one of the first things he said to me was, you used to talk to my picture all the time, he said. You asked many questions. <laughs> Needless to say, I had never told anyone I talked to pictures because back then you just didn't do that. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I met, basically, I met Maharaji through meeting Ram Dass. And it was extraordinary. By that time, of course, I, you know, there were a lot of, quote, gurus from the East that were coming to the West. It was just sort of the beginning of this influx of Eastern teachings coming to, to the West. And I had spent time with Swami Muktananda. I had spent time with a lot of different beings. And with all of them, I felt like something must be wrong with me. My heart just isn't open. 
there's something wrong with me. I can't bow before them comfortably. I can't touch their feet. I can't, you know, something very reluctant, you know, in that. And when I got to India, I was, I saw Satya Sai Baba, who was another one. Here was the avatar. And again, something's wrong with me. I can't open up to this being. The moment I was in front of Maharaji, there was no question. I mean, surrender is not something you make happen. It's something that is. (laughs) When you finally find the place that is home. Incredible. So incredible. So, Mm -hmm. wow. (laughs) (laughs) So like no precursor for you prior to taking the acid and would you say that the the use of the acid is the catalyst for that or well you got to how how do you make sense of that now like I know you're saying the the 60s and you're saying three weeks ago I would have never even right yeah well I I mean you got to remember I grew up in the 50s and early 60s I mean it was a time of very conformist. And very non-spiritual. I mean, I grew up Jewish in a very non-religious home. Never went to temple. Never did anything. I had no relationship to religion, to spirit. You know, I was very involved in art, which to me was the place that, you know, felt like I was getting some nourishment from, but not from any other direction. And it was only when this sort of new wave of consciousness exploded in America. We sort of needed back then the LSD to break through that very rigid and non-interesting thinking <laughs> that was predominant at that time. Nowadays, you don't. I mean, nowadays, you know, there's a place you can go meditate in every podunk town in America. You know, there's yoga studios on every corner. You know, it's a, it's very different. There are tons of books. Back then, there were only a handful. Yeah. So, I think that, I think yeah. that's very interesting. So it's a gateway. It was, it, it was, was a gateway was, for most of us that were there at that time, you know, that to sort of break through that, that old thinking and allow in this new concept of, consciousness and awareness and the Eastern teachings that in the West, I mean, I had gone to a college that prided itself on its liberal education. And, you know, we had to take two years of a very intensive course called Western civilization. We used to call it dead white men. You know, it was um, (laughs) so, so, I, I mean, I had taken courses on the Bible in college, more from a literature standpoint, because I was an English major. You know, but it didn't speak to me. <laughs> sure, sure. And I, I think it's yeah. important to note too that you know those doorways are different for you know everybody. Like I grew up in the eighties, and I found that like the use of drugs and acid pulled me away from, you know what I mean. Like it was mm-hmm. a barrier for me. It was not conducive. Like when I, you know, when I'm in that stage of my life where I'm exploring, that has a very like kind of not liberating energy for me around it. And as I got older, I realized this is not conducive to opening up. In fact, I feel more open when I'm far away from from those things. But And I wonder if that's because I hear a lot about that in the 60s. And I know it's highly personal either way. And so, you know, people have different journeys. But I hear that a lot from people saying in the 60s that, you know, taking acid and doing mushrooms or 
you know, any kind of any kind of the yeah. anything that yeah. got you beyond your mind. That's right. Yeah. That was really what it was. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But now it's not necessary. As I said, we didn't even have the concept of mindfulness. Right. We didn't have any of that. So finding it was just so exciting. Sure. It's so liberating. Absolutely. That uh yeah. you know, it was extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah. You know, and today, you know, a lot of these in the stories and whisper in the heart, there are still some people that are using medicine, as it's called now, you know, plant medicine, you know, to open up things. And as you see in their stories, they then go beyond that because at a certain point, it may provide an opening, but it's not the sustainer that's going to walk you down the path. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Me and Josh have yeah. talked about that a lot and right. saying you can come in, but you can't stay. I mean, which is great. Some people need right. that that quick vision to like, oh, this is here. But I think mm-hmm. where we get into problems now, and I see this with people using plant medicine a lot, is they begin to kind of integrate it being a long-term strategy. And that's not sustainable. Like, you know what I mean? You yeah. can't maintain that or it's going to be difficult, I should say, to maintain that for the long term, and you're going to have to be kicked out. Right. Yeah, Ramdas always used to say, you know, you use a method for as long as it works for you, and then you throw it out. Right. That's right. you know, it's a method. Beautiful advice. Yeah, yeah, we love that. Yeah. And so, one of my questions, since like you got to be in the presence of Maharishi, which I think a lot of people may be envy or a little jealous of. But what was that like? And then what did you see when he died with the devotees? Because I think that's interesting mm-hmm. when like such a, a being has such an impact in someone's life to not have that anymore. Because then you have like me and Jade who never knew, knew the body per se. And so we developed this relationship with that. And so we're not, we never actually had to deal with that kind of grief that you and all the others around. So could you talk a little bit about that? I think that's kind of interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, um, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I wouldn't trade anything in the world for my time with Maharaji in the body. And I was very attached to that body. I had to be holding his feet. I had to be rubbing his legs. You know, I had to be like there. I mean, even today I can go into an incredible state of with Maharaji, just by remembering the feel of the fringes of the blanket. I mean, you know, it's that tactile, you know, my memory of him, uh, you know, is a tactile one, you know, through the, through touching his feet, through touching the blanket, through that type of thing. And so when that physicality is gone, there's no choice but to get it internally, (laughs) you know? You know, and there was, of course, tremendous grief in losing the physical connection. I mean, we thought he was eternal. We thought he'd always be there. When we came back to America, it was like, okay, we're going to get healthy again. I mean, a year in India will do that to you. And um, <laughs> and then we're going to go back to India and be with Maharaji. We're going to do that our whole lives. We're going to come back to America, do our lives, go back to India. And then, of course, he, he upped and left. <laughs> But then it turns out he just didn't go very far, you know, as all these stories show that he's still there. I mean, for many of us, we went through lots of grief. I mean, Krishnadas talks about it a lot, about how depressed he was for 10 years, really, 
until he realized that the only way to get himself out of it was to sing with people, you know, and that's what sort of put him on his path. Uh, For me, it was constantly hearing people's stories and then thinking, well, you know, let's gather these before, first of all, all of us are gone. (laughs) And second of all, because that's really what we did in India when we were with Maharaji. I mean, during the time we were with him, it was just sort of hanging out. He didn't teach. He didn't lecture. You know, you had crazy conversations about the price of milk in America or about, (laughs) you know, it didn't matter. It was just this. And the reality was just sitting in the love. That was the reality. It was just sitting in it. I think that's really interesting point because I think even for me, I get you get this kind of whimsical idea of like, you know, I'm shocked here talking about the price of milk. I mean, it's like normal humanist stuff and chit chat and the banter. And so, like, what I'm hearing you say is those teachings, they're unsaid teachings and they're kind of between the lines and they're kind of given in the silence. And so, I think me would have an idea that, yeah, you're being like lectured to, or, you know, the parables are being relayed to, or you're having these like kind of stringent educational sessions or something on how to love everybody and serve everybody. And and so like, would you say that those teachings were given in a way energetically or? And by uh, example too. By I mean, example. I mean, we spent a lot, we were really taken in by the Indian devotees by Maharaji, you know, and their families and seeing these people who had been with Maharaji for 40 years, you know, and listening to their stories and just being gathered in to this community of love, you know, and seeing family in a different way than what we in America sort of experienced it as, you know, you know, what Ram Dass used to call family of the heart as opposed to our blood families, right? Uh, sorry, I lost my track again. Where are I? That's okay. That's okay. You answered the question. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's modeling. They were modeling for you right. how they were loving each other in your presence. And exactly, and you learned from that. Uh, yeah. And also Maharaji, you know, would do things. I mean, it wasn't all about the price of milk, you know, but sure. he, he didn't lecture like, you know, do this, this is what you, this yes. thing, you know, he, he didn't expect us to meditate. He didn't, you know, he said we were good for the five limbed yoga, not the eight limbed yoga, you know, (laughs) the five limbed yoga, which is, uh, I mean, I can't say it in Hindi, but it's eating, drinking chai, um, (laughs) uh, walking to and fro, gossiping and sleeping. (laughs) That's the five limbed yoga we were good for. (laughs) And he said, the only thing that matters in this day and age is Connecting to the name of God, you know, I mean, the only thing he ever had people do was either the Hanuman Chalisa, you know, which is this 40 verse prayer in Hindi to Hanuman, who is the monkey God (laughs) that serves Ram and service. Service became a very big thing. I mean, just naming Ram Das, you know, Das is servant. So it's servant of God. And he gave many of the boys Das names, sort of the Das family, you know, and that all relates to service. Somebody would ask him, well, you know, how should I meditate? You know, and he'd say, meditate like Christ. You know, when he was hung on the cross, he felt no pain, only love. Sure, that's how I'm going to meditate. 
That's a tall order. <laughs> it wasn't that, like, oh, well, you go to Goenka and, you know, take right. 10 courses in mindfulness and Vipassana. It, no, he didn't push us to do anything mm-hmm. other than, it's like the Dalai Lama saying, my religion is kindness. It was, how do you live your life? Not, you know, go be a yogi in a cave. And his devotees, many of those long-term devotees of his were married. They had families. You know, they were not yogis. That's why the movie Brilliant Disguise, because the person they're talking about, this man, Casey Tuari, who was one of Maharaji's long-term devotees, he was a school teacher. He, you know, he was married. He had children, seemed to be living a normal human life. But on the click of a hat, you know, snap of a finger, he could go into samadhi. So his disguise may have been that of a householder, but he was truly a very adept yogi. And that's what Maharaji sort of wanted us to know, that we didn't have to be a certain way. We didn't have to do certain things. We had to basically open your heart and love and be kind and serve. That's beautiful. So what I'm hearing is like part of the grief process or the grief journey that many went through is to continue to serve and or to find their way to do it. Yeah. To find their way again to yeah. do it. And then also mm-hmm. to hear like for you, it's like to hear these stories. Like they're mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting. We don't, you know, I'm trying to look back at like how important that is, but to hear other people's stories or even to share your own, what that can do in the process of remembering and continuing that bond and just, you mm-hmm. know, I think it's like just to remember aspect of it all. Well, when you tell your story, you have the experience of being seen, of being heard at the place of what's important to you. So it serves you to do that. And it serves others. By by the time you've read 150 people's tales in Whisper of the Heart about having met Maharaja, you begin to have a feeling for what that means. You know, you begin to be go, well, oh, you know, that's happened to me. I've looked at a picture and felt like I felt a presence there. I've been sitting and singing in kirtan and, you know, felt my heart open. I've had a dream in which I've seen a being that I felt blissful having that experience. And so it strengthens your faith. It strengthens the awareness that you have that there's more than meets the eye, shall we say. There's more than this physical plane reality. Thank goodness. It's interesting, like <laughs> saying, like in like in the book, right? There's just so many ways people found that, and it's not just mm-hmm. one. And I wanted to ask you, since this is a Grief Dreams podcast, have you ever had a dream of Maharaji? I didn't see it in the book. Um, I have not had a dream of him, certainly since he left his body, which I certainly wanted and still do. Okay. <laughs> uh, but um, I, when I was in India with him, I would dream of him at night. It was sort of like I felt like I was with him continuously. It was, it, you know, there was just like no let up <laughs> in that presence, which was just absolutely wonderful. Yeah. I mean, there were people like Mirabai you, you were talking about who had a dream that really helped get her out of her grief. I, I wish I'd had that. <laughs> But I hadn't. But there are certainly in the book so many stories of people's dreams and how important they were in people's lives. You know, I mean, a dream can change the entire direction of your life. That's why I found fascinating when I was reading the dreams. That was a 
continuing theme that people sort of had was that there's this love that was present that they needed to feel one way or another, or they reminded what love was, but also the life-changing aspects of it. I think that's so beautiful just when looking at the power of some of these moments in someone's life. And I think like what we do here is just raising awareness on why can't we talk about these powerful moments? Like, why are we ashamed to in some way or afraid to? Like, they're changing us. Like, we should be like shouting from the mountains. Like, <laughs> like well, I had this ring. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I know. But, you know, people are much more willing to share that now. I mean, it, it's becoming a more open type of experience, something that I don't think people are being shamed for in any way. No. You know, it's just people may disbelieve you or they may go, ah, it was a dream. What do you know? You know, no big deal. <laughs> but it is a big deal. The thing is that love, that unconditional love is, is an experience we don't usually have here in the West, you know, or where you have a relationship with somebody where there is literally no condition put on that love, on both the love that you're giving and the love you're receiving. It's it's just there. It's just its own essence, <laughs> so to speak. And you know that Maharaji knows everything about, at least we did. I mean, just like he said, you used to talk to my picture all the time. You asked many questions. Well, if he knew that about me, obviously he knew everything else too. You know, and he showed us that over and over again in many small ways. A friend would come in one day, you know, after having had a big fight with her husband, and Maharaji would say something to her about, oh, you didn't uh, offer me your toast this morning. Well, if he knew that you didn't offer your toast that morning, then you, he certainly knew she'd had a big fight with her husband. But that didn't get mentioned. <laughs> but knowing that he knows literally everything about you and still totally loves you unconditionally with no judgment whatsoever is something that's very hard for people to understand. But they can get a glimpse of that space when they've had Darshan in a dream. How yeah. beautiful. Kate, I think it's a good time for you to chat about your, your dream. Sure. Yeah. I'll share my dream. I just want to say before that yeah, what what a scary sentiment to be exposed and having somebody have awareness about your life that you might not be openly prepared to share. But in the same breath, what a relief. What a yeah. relieving place to be that is free of distress. And it's like, well, I'm exposed and here I am and I'm still loved. And it's just, you can feel the weight of being proper, just kind of move off you. So that's a beautiful thought. I really love that thought. Yeah. My dream of, I've only ever had one dream of Maharaji and it was in 2015 and I was not in a beautiful spot in my life. I had many questions about recent decisions I've made and where I was going and how I was going to get out of this web that I was in that I didn't want to be in. And I didn't know the way out. What's interesting was that it was on my birthday that I had the dream. Oh. And I wasn't in my home. I was actually in a hotel, but the dream was it was at night and I was walking through this alleyway and it was like a war zone. Like there was just chaos and there was a riot. There was people flipping cars. There was burning buildings, very thick smoke in the air. 
just chaos, violence, chaos, just really hyper, you know, very stimulated and just walking and feeling just a feeling of anxiety of like, how am I going to get out there? And what we know about our dream research and everything that those things often, you know, mimic our waking life. And so, like you say, like the daily runoff. And so that was likely indicative of just how I was interpreting what I was dealing with, maybe to the, you know, extreme. But I ran down an alleyway and there was a little wood kind of raggedy hut to my left. And I kind of ducked in the door and I went in and it was completely dark, but it was peaceful in there. And I remember thinking when I went in the door, oh, I have a reprieve, like I'm I'm safe. Naive of me to think this little raggedy hut was going to protect me in a war zone, but a riot outside. But I was thinking, oh, I'm safe here. And then I looked in the corner and there was kind of like a bench built all around the hut and Maharaji was sitting in the corner in the shadows and barely any light, but I could see almost like a sliver of his face. And I moved closer and I sat on the bench next to him. And I didn't say like, help, you know, help me, like get me out of this riot. But I was conveying it with my eyes. That that was the feeling in the dream. I sat down and there was a blanket there and I pulled it over my legs, but the bottom of my legs were sticking out. And he reached out to touch my leg and I pulled my foot under the blanket, like how I would read in the books that he used to do, you know, kind of tease the people. So I did that. Mm -hmm. And he said, you don't want me to touch your leg? And I said, yeah, I do. And I pulled the blanket back out. Like (laughs) in the dream, I'm thinking, I'm not missing this opportunity. Yes, I do. But you know, that witty repartee of like, and I have nothing to go off. Like, I don't even know. I just, I've read in books that that's what he used to do. So I was kind of, you know, giving him a taste of his own medicine, I guess. And so, (laughs) yeah, I said, yes, I do. And so he reached out and touched my leg and he looked me in the eyes and he said with his finger up, all you have to remember is the dove of hope. And I didn't know what that meant, but I woke up And of course, I was feeling elated and incredibly relaxed. And I didn't know what that meant. You know, me and Joshua have talked about it a lot, lot. ad nauseum. But we, you know, trying to make sense. Like, okay, he wants me to be hopeful. And I assume that that's in relation to eventually this riot and war zone will cease. And so so that's what, six years ago? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Seven years ago? Six years ago? I can see maybe how that's kind of, I can definitely see how the dove of hope has kind of come. And so me and Josh have talked about, you know, in the Bible, how the, how they send the dove out and, you know, Noah's Ark, they want it to bring back a branch sign of land. And And it's also always a symbol of peace, the dove. Yeah. So he's bringing peace to that chaos. Remember the dove of hope. Yeah. and. The dove came back with a branch and, you know, shift upwards, but it took a long time, long time right. between the dream and a feeling in my life where I thought oh, I'm out of, I'm out of the web. But the I'm, dream has stayed with you. I've never forgot that's, the dream. That's one Both of the past. ways that you know that this was Darshan, that you were in the presence of is because it left such a powerful imprint. 
on you. Yes. And it was, it's funny. So when I told Mirabai about the dream as well, and she's like, well, I said, I don't know what it means, Mirabai, but like, I'm holding on to the promise. And this was before the upward shifts that I've Mm -hmm. experienced since our last conversation, in-depth conversation. And I, she said, try to draw a dove. And I'm like a horrible artist. It's not my thing. And so I remember calling Josh and being like, I don't know. And I'm like YouTubing like how to draw a dove. She said, <laughs> you know, paint it and stuff. And so there's paper on the ground. I was like, I can't draw a dove. Like, do I really need to do this? Is this the key to understanding what it is? But I think, yeah, all the nuances I don't, I don't fully get. But yeah, I think according to just our interpretation of what a dove means Mm -hmm. and you know those kind of the scriptures and the symbol of hope i think has been helpful and i'm under the impression that there's there's more to come that dove is bringing more like i'm still in the space where i'm remembering the dove of hope and i believe there's more peace to come you know and so yeah i would say it's like top i had a, a dream of ram das as well and that was a powerful dream but definitely at the top and yeah, has stuck with me all this time. A lot of the dreams that count in the book, he's clearing up people's confusion. You know, sometimes when people have met Maharaji, they've already been involved with another guru, another teacher, and may have a, or, you know, they grew up, you know, in a, a fairly religious setting, you know, and so Christ has always been, you know, at the forefront. And so they, they have a conflict. Well, well, what do I do now with this Bob in the blanket, you know, (laughs) compared to, you know, this other person I've been, you know, using as my representation of the divine, right? And he'll frequently come in dreams and show himself merging or sitting side by side with this other being to show them that it's all a sub-ek, it's all one. That's what he came back to over and over and over again. It's all one, sub-ek, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and there's some powerful dreams where he, you know, showing somebody that, yes, you know, the place in you that finds that in Mayor Baba can also find it in me and we're the same place. Yeah. You know? And, you That's, know, it's interesting you say yeah. that because I, you know, have like with a lot of things in the relationship and the curiosity and the draw, I felt like I haven't really had a choice. Like, it's just like, okay, this is what we're doing now. And this is where your heart is and you feel connected to this, but I can't. And it's interesting. I have... Other times earlier, like when I have like your little puja in your house and you have a picture and then like the cable guy comes and you like flip the picture down because you think, (laughs) you know, like it's not Jesus. It's, you know, because I don't want Shaw Cable to know, you know, I have this, you're going to say like, who's this man or the monkey statue, you know, and then the humor of that is like, Mm. this is what I'm using to get to where I need to be. And it's like, but it's not like how my grandparents grew up in organized Christianity and you have Jesus on the cross all over your house and then it's nothing. And so, yeah, I get what you're saying. Sabiq. And, and so it's, but it's my own challenge, you know, and I say, Maharaji, sorry, I got to put you down. You know, I'm not, I'm not in a place of readiness <laughs> and I can hear like the laughter, right? Like whatever you need. He doesn't care. He doesn't um, care. No. Do, whatever, do whatever you want with me. It's, <laughs> that's on you. So, you know, the ownership I'm like one day I'll get to a place that mm-hmm. I'll be able to have your picture in me and Josh have talked about this, a, a, you know, a lot, but right. finding that space and Josh, you have a really cool Maharaji dream. Would you like to share it quickly? Yes. Yeah. So I've only had one, sort of like you, Jade. My PhD was, it was just a difficult journey that, you know, people just don't know. You don't talk about it. They see that you have this thing and they, that's all they see, but they don't understand the journey. And so to then find a a place that felt like home 
I had to sort of come to British Columbia. And so I, I took a risk. Oh, I, <laughs> this is what the story's about. So I, <laughs> I took a risk. I quit my job during the pandemic. I was working in Ontario. And then just to come out here, it, was just, it just felt right. And everyone thought it was crazy to do that, to not have anything lined up. And then I came down here. And within two weeks, I had a job in the field that I've always wanted to have a job in. And it provided consistency. It provided enough financial stability to help me work through the debt that I had and also prepare and to save for the future and to buy new clothes, like all the sort of stuff that I've always kind of wanted to be able to do. And then to be able to do that and then to continue to do the bereavement research. It's not on dreams specifically, but they do come up, but it's on how people's support has changed throughout the pandemic. So I get to serve in a way that I was serving prior and actually get paid for it. So like how amazing that is. And then to be in this place with mountains and water, and it's just like a breath of fresh air. And I felt a lot of like, we're talking before, just trauma almost like settling or like the, the pain, like, and the fears just settling down. So anyways, the dream I had was I was talking, I, I think it was to, Jade was there and then there was someone else and I was talking to, and then there's Maharaji to the left of, of me. And then I was talking to this person. I said, yes. And then like, I moved here. I was talking about the story of moving from Ontario to here. And then he was just cracking up. It was just like the, he thought it was the funniest story ever. And then I looked at him and I just knew what he was laughing at. And it was the word I. <laughs> <laughs> And then I started laughing. I thought it was the funniest thing too. And then I then went back to the person and carried on the conversation. And then the word I came up again. And then he started cracking up and I started cracking up. And then we just like, just started like laughing and the conversation just stopped. And then uh, he came over to me and then I, I hugged him. I got the chance to actually like touch him for like the first time. And he felt like a, um, you know, a squishmallow stuffed animal that, that's like out there now. Anyways, he felt like that because I just recently that day went to like Toys R Us and felt one for the first time. <laughs> and so, so it felt like that. Like there's, there's no bones. It's just like, it's like, and then it was just a funny, and it was a beautiful moment. I woke up, I'm just like, wow. And then I, I, I still, to this day, like look at that dream and it helps me take the pressure off myself in a lot of ways and to just surrender to what's going on in these moments. It's bigger, you know, it's bigger than me and to, it's okay to have fun. To stay in joy, to play, to not take life as seriously as I once was. And that dream, I look at that and it's just like, I'm like, where's the eye in this? Just like enjoy this. And so it just makes you also sit in that mystery of what life is. And so I, I love it. I love the energy of that dream. But yeah, it was just, it was a great moment. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> That's wonderful. It reminds me of a story actually that I do tell in the book, just about how he knows what you need. You know, the way he knows that you needed to lighten up. So, you know, that's what happened. You lightened up from being able to sit there and laugh with him, right? You know, there I was um, back in India. I was smoking these awful little cigarettes called beedies. They're just uh, a beetle leaf wrapped around some very low-grade tobacco. They're horrible. But I was doing them and hanging out with the guy who I married, or Maharaji married me to, I should say. <laughs> And so I was smoking is sort of a social thing to do, right? But I sort of wanted to quit. They were really disgusting little things. So I, when I walked into the ashram one day, Maharaji called me over and he said, Parvati, stop smoking beedies. <laughs> and so I immediately, you know, handed over my pack 
to somebody else. And, you know, after lunch, he called me up and he congratulated me on having stopped smoking. (laughs) And he said, I'm the CID of the heart. The CID is the Indian equivalent of the CIA. So it was sort of like he's saying, I know what was in your heart. And so that's, I think of him that way many times, that he's the CID of the heart. And he knows what it is you need. He knows what your heart is yearning for. And there he is for you. I love that. It's beautiful. You don't feel so alone. I think in this world, it's so easy to feel alone and to feel stressed and not supported and have to hide parts of yourself. And to have a moment like that, it can carry on for a lifetime. And I think, you know, when people ask about a lot of these dreams, they, they want them all the time. <laughs> they get the, it's like a drug, right? Like they just wanted that kick, but, you know, sometimes you only have one in your entire life, but that's, and that's all, you, all need. you need. Right. Exactly. Right. I know I have a story by somebody who said in the beginning, when she first met Maharaji through her dreams, and she had a lot of dreams. She had them very, very frequently. And she was very uh, sort of... um I don't know how to say this. She, you know, in the beginning, she was like, sort of like, what are you doing? What are you doing here? You know, type of thing. But he kept coming. He kept coming. You know, he kept coming over and over and over again until finally she was just a completely smitten devotee. Right. (laughs) And then at that point, sort of the honeymoon was over. And now she goes, now I keep waiting for another dream. (laughs) Uh, Pete Pete, uh, Holmes, you know, the comedian, uh, wrote the foreword for the book. You know, he's a, longtime Maharaji person, but he grew up very fundamentalist Christian and he and his wife, Val, both. And Val has a wonderful story uh, in the book where they've come to the retreat in Maui that Ramdas used to do. And the, the child is sick. So here she is in Maharaji's place. She says, Maharaji, I don't want to test you, but please, I need help right now with my kid. <laughs> Because I guess testing God is like a big no-no, at least in the fundamentalist Christian world. And so people have this strange feeling like if they're asking something of Maharaji or of whoever, you know, that it's not the right thing to do, that you're somehow testing them. But really, that's what we want to do. We want to bring our whole selves into the presence of the divine. And so there is nothing to hide. You know, because the divine knows what's in your heart. Absolutely. I think not being attached to how those things come. Like I do that stuff all the time. You make requests. I need support with this. Like help. Help help me. (laughs) Please (laughs) (laughs) figure this out for me. Like you know, that's but who but part of that is and who are you asking? Who knows? Sometimes it just, it, you know what I mean? People who are skeptics or non-believers or people that are non-denominational or even consider themselves atheists. I've had conversations with them about the same thing. Like, what's the harm in even just verbalizing? I mean, there's benefit to even just having the vulnerability to say, I don't even know who I'm talking to, but I need support or I need to acknowledge that I have a weakness right now in terms of my faith is lacking or I'm not trusting the way of life. And so sometimes saying that is a huge part of the battle, I guess, or the, you know, the journey. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's like, here I am. This is who it is. (laughs) You know, this is who I am right now. (laughs) And that's what I meant earlier when I said, Maharaji said, okay, love everyone. The first person you've got to love is yourself. Yeah, I think it was Ramana Maharshi who said, God, Guru, and self are one. 
So when you think about that, when you're asking something that you think is external for help, what you're really going is in my highest self, please come forward and take care of this. You know, it's the intuitive place that you don't need to be going to an external deity for. Some people can find it just sitting outside under a tree. They don't need anything else. It's just like you go in far enough, you're coming to that place where God, guru, and self are one. And guru literally just means remover of darkness. And what people don't understand is that there's a difference between, you know, the upa guru, which are all of our teachers, the ones who show us the way, right? You know, like I have a meditation teacher. You can have a golf guru. You know, you can have <laughs> whatever it is. And then there's the sat guru. And sat guru means truth. Sat is truth. So that's the one that removes the darkness of ignorance and leads you into the truth of who you really are. Not of who they are, but of who you are. <laughs> You know, and that when Maharaji shows up in your dream, he's showing you that you have internally, you know, through your own intuitive openness, your own ability to open, have allowed yourself to experience that in the form that comes to you in your dream. But it's all one. That's what he kept saying. Sub ek. It's all one. God, guru, and self. It's all one. Wow. This has been a beautiful conversation. I, so enjoyed just hearing your stories and like sharing my own was said like it's one of the first times on air sharing that so it's just really nice to be able to just be in this moment together and i really appreciate you being open to continuing to talk to us about this and um, hopefully you have some more books too like guessing these stories are not going to stop they're just going <laughs> to continue not. to come your way <laughs> as soon as a book comes out i start getting messages from people going oh if i'd only known you were doing this i've got such a good story <laughs> i'm actually really curious before we uh, wrap up has there ever been a story that you heard that almost you're like come on you just almost couldn't believe it yourself? Well, the wildest one, which is in the book, is uh, this boy, Paul, from Australia, who, as a young child, was really severely uh, sexually and emotionally abused by groups of men. And at one point, he's like nine, almost 10 years old, and he's coming home from school one day. And the house looks like it's exploded, like some, like a bomb went off inside. And he's really scared. He's alone. His parents aren't home yet. And a man shows up and wraps him in a blanket and says, it's all done. And then he doesn't remember anything after that. And, but after that, he was never touched again. And then many years later, because he'd been in such a severely abusive situation growing up, he winds up marrying somebody who abuses him. And 20 years into the marriage with two kids, you know, finally gets divorced, moves into a high rise in Australia. He's a beautiful, you know, mountains on one side, ocean on the other, a really beautiful place. And all of a sudden he finds himself with one leg over the balcony and about to put the other leg over the balcony. And all of a sudden he feels this big rush of love coming towards him and he backs off going, I don't understand it, but I'm loved. Some, you know, somebody loves me. And, you know, it, it's just this, you know, and he suddenly goes, well, what about the boys? I mean, he hadn't even thought about them, you know, when he was about to jump. So anyway, uh, after the divorce and many years later, he 
gets into a relationship with a woman in the States. And at one point when he's visiting the States, he sees for the very first time a picture of Maharaji, whether it's on a book cover or a magazine. I don't remember where. And he goes, oh, my God. He goes, that's the blanket. Oh, my God. That's the man. And I'm interviewing him on Zoom from Australia. <laughs> and uh, and he goes, I'll never forget that blanket. He goes, I'll never forget the way it felt. I'll never forget the smell of it. I'll never forget that day. He goes, it was September 11th, 1973. And I look at him and I go, do you know what that day is? He goes, no. He goes, that's the day Maharaji left his body. And that's the day he showed up to this little boy and said, it's all done. And he never again was abused. So that to me was a pretty remarkable story. Wow. Mm. I look forward to uh, continuing to read. I said, I've, I've only read the yeah. dreams chapter so far. Well, read some of the others. All the, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll, I'll be looking for that. And so one of our last questions that we have for guests on the podcast is, since you really haven't had a dream yet of Maharaji since he's died, what dream would you want to have tonight if you could of Maharaji? Anything where I felt his presence. Mm. I mean, there's just nothing like that that love. There's no other energy in the world that I can think of that I would want to be in the heart of <laughs> than that totally unconditional, non-judgmental, all-encompassing feeling of being home, being mm. safe, being loved, being seen for who you are. Well, I hope I have that dream too. Yeah. <laughs> we all can have that dream tonight. <laughs> so I just want to thank you again so much. And people, like I said, if you love, you know, grief dreams, this is a really good book. And it's a great introduction also, not only the dreams, but Maharaji and you can learn more about them. But I think you'd probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I think most people in different religions with different like types of gurus or teachers like you know Christians with Jesus would I would think have maybe similar dreams based on those individuals too. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, so Sabek, same Sabek place. All one. Yeah, right. <laughs> Maharaji used to say over and over again, Hanuman and Christ are one. That's one of my favorite teachings because mm -hmm. I grew up Christian and said I had a great uh, love for Jesus and still do. And then you just realize that there's other places that can open you up where there's limitations based on teachings or based on how you were taught to really open your heart a little bit more. So I just want to say thank you for writing the, the two books and I'm excited to read the third book, you know, the Isabella one. It's funny, <laughs> even though it's a children's book, it's still based on the basic spiritual values of, you know, love and kindness. I would expect nothing less yeah. from you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for bringing this into the world. You know, this is, you are doing your service by sharing, you know, this kind of space with people. So thank you for what you do. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed this conversation and yeah, really touched and just inspired by your work and mm -hmm. your being as a person and appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you.